0: Hello! Choose Trust is our regular podcast looking at how to build high trust relationships in business and the value that brings to everyone involved. I'm Stuart Maester and together with my co-presenter Kevin Vaughan Smith we're writing a book for Economist Books with the same name, Choose Trust. So we thought we'd meet and interview leaders who put some of these principles into practice and hear their real-world experiences of doing so and the value that brought. I hope you enjoy this episode and if you do, please subscribe and of course, please do share it. i'm stuart meister and welcome to choose trust today i'm without my fellow md kevin Vaughn smith but i am with greg craig the outgoing ceo of one of the uk's biggest construction companies scans so, hello greg nice Hi, to see you uh, now greg is steeped in the sector having worked for Carillion, which is a company that used to be a major player in the uk market But he's actually been with Skanska for 20 years, starting in 2003 as operations director and working his way up to CEO. For those that don't know Skanska, it's the UK business unit of the fifth largest construction company in the world, which has a $16 billion turnover, and it's Swedish in origin, which may come up in the discussion as as a factor. Let's see. Now, Greg, one of the things that always strikes me is this. I've done work with Skanska, with you guys and with others in the construction sector, and The construction sector really depends on critical safety behaviours, getting everything absolutely right, incredible levels of accuracy, cooperation between lots of contractors on, on often huge and very, very complex projects. So there's loads of factors involved, but it's always amazing to me in that context that there are historically such low levels of trust in large parts of the sector, especially infrastructure in my experience contracts are awarded very transactionally through very formal procurement processes where there is no collaboration. The subcontracts often hired on that basis and there are low levels of trust between buyers and sellers I see.
1: Do you you agree with me? And if if you do, why is that do you think? Uh, I mean, I've I've certainly seen a lot of exactly what you describe um, where it is transactional. Uh, And there are, as you say, relatively low levels of trust in places. Yeah. And so that certainly uh, has existed for a long time and still does exist. Um, But actually, there are also other really good examples of probably exactly the opposite, Uh, highly collaborative behavior um, and where people choose to really genuinely work together.
0: I love the idea of choosing the, the theme of this is choose trust and it's an intentional thing. Could you, if you were to look across all the different types of projects that you've been involved with in, the scans, been involved with, can you differentiate between different types of clients as to where it's one rather than the other?
1: Yeah, well, the, the main difference in the type of clients is public sector and private sector. Um, obviously, public sector is highly dependent on procurement processes in that they have to follow them uh, and are subject to challenge, uh, which could be a real mess if they haven't followed them. Um, whereas the private sector may well have a process, but they don't actually have to follow it uh, at the end of the day. So it could well be that there is you know, one person that owns a development company. Uh, and if he chooses that he's going to go for a particular contractor because he's just uh, really taken a shine to the project director uh, irrespective of the fact that they might be more expensive maybe even a little bit longer in time but he thinks he's going to get the right job that's his decision and he doesn't have to follow any procurement rules
0: so let's look at where it's not true uh, often in the public sector for the reasons you've given does that if there are great reasons for formal processes and so there's no one's arguing against that but in that transactional process where there is very formal game playing on both sides, does that result in the best outcome in your experience?
1: Well, th- let's just jump back a second uh, and explore maybe the procurement process. Bear in mind that um, we're often referred to as contractors. so everything that we do is a function of having a contract and pretty much all of those you you've got to win the contract so it's a competition so we've we've trained ourselves to compete really highly and you just got to work out what is it that makes you win so if someone uh, so if a customer sets a particular procurement process uh, you you need to find the way of achieving a win at the end of that process um, and that that's really what the, the procurement process forces you to do if you're going to win your future uh, workload um, and therefore over time uh, you get better and better at uh, working out what is it that's going to make me win. And sometimes that will be some very extensive and detailed scoring mechanisms that customers may have um, that you can work out exactly what answers they're looking for. I mean, I've even heard of one. We, we weren't involved in this, but there was one where I understand that the, uh, the consultants working for the customer actually had a computer program. That looked through all of the written answers, and they were looking for specific words, and you got a score against putting specific words into your uh submission I mean how rubbish is that um, but that's at the worst end of it. Some of the procurement practices are actually very good uh, and work very well as well so so in that situation, I mean give us an idea of what what
0: kind of moneys at stake in some of these projects, what's the range of, you know, for this kind of process?
1: I, I mean, you're talking everything from, I mean, I, <clears throat> I suppose some form of procurement process, you wouldn't do it for anything less than maybe a hundred thousand um, pounds, but anything up to more than a billion pounds uh, of work.
0: Tell me some Tell me some stories if you like, I know no names, no pack drill, but where, where perhaps, people have gone down the other route and the result of that in your experience, where it's been good or bad, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. I'd love to know, um, or, or where they may have gone the other a route where you've gone for a gig and, um, or for the reasons you've said, and it's resulted in a better outcome.
1: Well, well I, I think we, we've actually been fairly, uh, fairly good at staying away from our those other contracts and um, where they are just really transactional. Right. Um,
0: are you brought in though sometimes to, to sort the problems out afterwards?
1: Uh, <laughs> occasionally we, we've we, we've helped out, but um, when a project gets into real difficulty because it's just that the, the model isn't right and it's been badly procured, it's very difficult to, to rescue that. You're, you're better off starting again, probably with a different model. Um and you mentioned Carillion. Some of the Carillion contracts, in fact, when they restarted up, started up under quite a different model and quite rightly so. For those that don't uh, know, Carillion
0: was probably was one of the biggest was, ever yeah. uh companies that went bust, wasn't it? But C- certainly huge... one of
1: the biggest, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: With massive, complex projects half done all over the country. I presume there were cranes up all over the place that were just, you know, were Carillion project, you know, it's been incredible. Yeah. It,
1: it it was certainly a very difficult time for staff at Carillion, the customers, and particularly the supply chain, um, and not good for the industry for a large player to go under. That that was a bad day for the industry.
0: Yeah. yeah. What have been the legacy of that for the industry? In in this area that we're talking about about the looking at the way contracts are awarded building trusted relationships rather than just transacting. Has it made any difference?
1: Well, I think you need to recognise that the construction industry uh, is actually potentially very high risk um, in the, you know, we're usually talking millions uh, all the time. Uh, The margins are pretty small, uh, I would say. Um, And therefore the ability to pay for Uh, A risk that you've taken on that goes wrong uh, and you shouldn't have taken that on uh, is very difficult uh, to end up paying for that. Uh, And you, you only have to take on two or three risks that you shouldn't have taken on and you could be in a whole world of trouble.
0: So that speaks to both to companies being very risk averse for the reasons you've just said. You've got small margins, big numbers involved, things go wrong, your margins wiped out and more potentially on a, on a project you could you know you might have a 10 year project and you wipe out the 10 years of margin on one thing going wrong if you've got the wrong contract i guess
1: certainly the the numbers that are involved uh, could be business critical yeah but you see this is where it differentiates good contractors and the not so good contractors in that it's really important that you know what you're good at what you're skilled at and the risks that you can manage and mitigate on behalf of customers and that's the service that you should sell you shouldn't take a punt on being able to control risks that are either totally out of your control or you've never really dealt with before. And that's uh, there's a lot of work that goes on in the large contract, in fact, most contractors, uh, as to uh, the scrutiny of the project that you're about to take on, but also the terms within within which you're going to take that on. That's really, really important
0: nevertheless i mean i do a lot of work in this area we're helping organizations determine what are their strengths and focusing on those so that they have the greatest story to tell to the marketplace mm. and it should be a different story from the other guys who do much the same thing i don't see that much differentiation in the construction market if I'm honest in terms of the story that contractors or construction companies are telling uh, and therefore how do you build trust in your brand in their marketplace as opposed to the other big players who can all do many of the same projects I mean, in terms of in capability terms you've all got i think
1: very similar capabilities so where do you differentiate there are clearly uh, a number of absolutely excellent large contractors uh, in terms of what they can deliver how they build their engineering competence uh, etc and um, I think that there is definitely a place to differentiate yourself in terms of how you actually go about that process with your customer. And particularly also, because they're a little bit forgotten at times, particularly the supply chain uh, as well. You know, we we need both ends of that spectrum.
0: Interesting. Uh, if, just in passing, I would say that uh, just to echo what you said, in almost because this is a, a a podcast that's for all sorts of businesses, mm-hmm. it's so often the case. That if you really try and work out how you differentiate yourself in the marketplace whatever business you're in it's the how you do what you do rather than what you do that makes the difference yeah. because you know if you're a law firm we provide top legal services so does everyone else yeah. how do we behave and do that and can we describe it that's where people make choices as to who to work with and so i just want to echo that now in this whole area greg the, the construction sector is not short of warm words about collaboration, trust, partnering. There's a an initiative that those in the sector will know very well, but others won't called Project 13, which is in, has been around for quite some time. It is intended to recognize this problem that people have had of transactional contracting behavior rather than collaborative partnering behavior, where we know much better outcomes result if you can achieve it. And yet the industry has struggled to go from those warm words of which there is no shortage into actual behaviours in practice. Firstly, on things like Project 13, those sorts of initiatives, what's your view of that and the success or otherwise of those sorts of initiatives?
1: I think, um, I think we need to be a little bit careful about um, a theoretical model and the reality of putting something into practice. Um, And I say a theoretical model, I I could describe it as simply as it's incredibly logical and it makes a lot of sense to say, why don't we just all work together? Why don't we all collaborate and we will get a better result? Everyone in a room will be nodding at that point in time. And and that's your sort of theoretical model. And it's all built around that principle. Um th- this might be slightly controversial, but uh, once you introduce the human into the theory, life gets a little bit more challenging. So humans make mistakes uh, at times, um, but actually humans don't necessarily either want to own up to them or pay for them. Uh, because, as I say, some of those mistakes could be rather expensive. Then you start to see uh, alternative behaviours coming in. And the, the the sort of very theoretical models um don't really focus too much on how do you deal with difficult behaviors.
0: How do you deal with difficult behaviors in your experience?
1: I think you've you've gotta you've gotta find people that are prepared to see a little bit wider than what's just right in front of them, um, so it may well be that you've got an argument of over, let's say, the the cost of some change, yeah. Uh, and usually the the most the strongest arguments will somewhere be associated with money, yeah. Um, and when you sort of start to Push yourself in into corners. Uh, you know you're just not prepared to give up uh, an extra percent or two o- on something. Uh, that you, you're just gonna you're in a no-win argument. Um, whereas actually, if you start to say, "Well, hang on a second, yeah, if I take the long-term view, I actually would like this not to be one project with this customer." Uh, because they're a good customer, they've got a constant flow of work. I want this to be five, six, seven projects, ideally, over a long period of time. Now you're starting to take a view. In the context of that, what we're arguing over is tiny, actually for both of us. Um, And therefore, do we really need to argue? Should we compromise? Are we just going to take the hit on this? Whatever it is, find a solution to it. You no, know, they're the more sort of collaborative behaviors that you'd be looking at from a commercial perspective. So,
0: again, I, I've had lots of discussions like this, you can imagine. I, I, I want to put to you, I and mean, this is a bit of a plug for mutual value, to be honest, because we believe very strongly, and that's the title of our book and this podcast, mm-hmm. that you need to choose trust. You need to have the intention to build trust relationship from the beginning. Identify all those situations that are going to arise, because they always do, as you say, humans, things go wrong, people make mistakes, etc. You discover an archaeological find when you're digging something that Mm -hmm. no one knew was there, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff happens. And work out in advance how you're going to deal with it and then hold each other accountable for that and almost make it part of the agreement from the beginning Mm -hmm. that this is how we're going to behave. But not just make it part of the agreement at the beginning, but continually monitor behaviours on a regular basis. I would suggest facilitators because the parties involved are going to revert to contractual behaviour because they're under pressure from their own companies to not lose margin. That's what's going to happen unless someone is slightly refereeing it, is my view. Well, so you have to design this and bake it into the process, in my experience, rather than hope that you've got the right people on the front line. Who behave in that way. What, what do you
1: think of that as a, as an idea? Um, I would say this because I've, I've got a commercial background at the beginning of my career. Um, but if, if you've created a deal and you've written it down, you have formed a contract, you should stick by it. Um, and therefore we need to be, be careful that we do actually follow what we agreed to do in the first place. Um, if that contract doesn't quite work for us, we could both sit down and decide to amend it. Um, So that's always quite possible as well. But the contract is quite important because that gives people reliability. But it also means that you can disseminate the deal that maybe two of you made or a small number of people made in a room. But you can disseminate that to a large number of people because it's on paper. And they can uh, understand it, particularly when it comes down to quality and specification and, and things like that. But um, to just go back to your point on trust. Uh, if, if we take a, a project where you're forming new relationships, it's a new customer. Um, I think you can choose to give the benefit of the doubt. So I want to trust you. And I'm very prepared to give the benefit of the doubt until I find out otherwise. Now, some people aren't wired like that, but I think a lot of people are. Um, But I think then you've where trust really starts to build is over time. And this is not over a lunch or a dinner. I think you can't really build trust in, in that sort of way of relationships. Trust is built when you're actually working together. And that means that you are uh, working your way through various problems that come up, you're working your way through things that go better than uh, than you were expected, you, you, you go through all of those sort of challenges in the day-to-day and then you see how you're both behaving because some of those actually may well be your problem or I think it's your problem, you think it's my problem uh, or my mistake Now, how do we deal with it? And sometimes it might be very small things and you just quickly work it out. But when it comes to quite a big one, let's say there's there's a big amount of money. uh, You're the customer and it's now going to blow your budget. And I can't take it on, uh, in my opinion, because uh, actually, I don't think I'm responsible for that under the contract. And for sure, even if I was, I can't afford it uh, with the sort of margin that we've got. Now, what do you do? Um, and I, I still remember once um, with a customer, this is many, many years ago, um, they were causing us quite a problem in constantly undervaluing change all the time. No matter what you submitted, you would even if you submitted the absolute facts and evidence uh, as to exactly what something would cost, they'd always knock money off. And I think this is probably a fault of the industry and that maybe they've been uh, uh, exaggerated for many, many times. Anyway, that's what they did. And this came to a head one day and I had the most almighty row. I mean, it was probably one of the strongest arguments I've ever had and some very bad language, uh, I'd have to admit. Yeah. And we were absolutely at each other's throats uh, on this. And that customer actually became one of the strongest relationships I've ever had. And it was to a certain extent because we had that big argument. So we've both pushed ourselves, I suppose, to the perimeter of what we're actually personally prepared to tolerate from another uh, individual. And then what do you do? Well, you could walk out of the room. I'm never speaking to you again. Or you can choose to do something different. And uh, I'm very pleased to say on that occasion, we chose to do something different in that we both sort of acknowledge, well, hang on a second, this can't carry on. What do we actually do to fix our relationship? Because at the moment, it's broken. We don't trust each other. How do we get to a point where we are prepared to trust each other? And I think that we then sort of worked on that. We had a fairly long conversation, a lot calmer conversation. At the end of that conversation, having pushed ourselves to the absolute limit, and then both chosen to come back from that and start to work out how we should actually work, which is definitely not having a big blazing row. It actually, you you don't want to go there again. Uh, And we found a way of I suppose creating some mutual respect i understand your problem a little bit more now that i've actually listened to you and vice versa and that then allows you to say okay what are our options in in how to deal with it and, you know you go through what you should have done in the first place uh, which is genuinely seek to find a solution uh, that we can both live with
0: so that's a fascinating story and it's a great outcome but I just say what it resonates with me is that how often we you know, from my own from our experience, Kevin Kevin my experience, we've been brought in to work with broken relationships on major, major contracts where there's uh, hundreds of millions more yeah. at stake and it's being hidden sometimes from the client if it's the contract side, or it might be the other way around. And it's been allowed to get to the point where the, the relationship is broken. I can think of one example, working with a contra- two, a, a tra- historical contractor, subcontractor, but actually they'd won a major, major contract as partners. But actually three years in, they were not behaving as partners. They were behaving as contractor and subcontractor, very contract with each other. And the result was there was a lot of blame, a lot of finger pointing, and guess what we brought in? Because as you say, the relationship was broken. What's interesting is to say, I think, how can you, because that happens so often and people often just tolerate broken relationships or get on with it or change personnel or move people in to try and fix it that way. It's a fixing a problem. What's interesting is to say, how can you design all major projects from the beginning so that, it, this, these things are kind of self-fixing, or that 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 you won't get to that point where you're swearing at each other in a room. I mean, you can't always avoid mm-hmm. it, human beings, mm-hmm. but you're doing everything you can to have agreed how we're going to deal with these issues prior to reaching that point. What what are your thoughts on that? If, if any,
1: I, I think this is probably more where leadership comes into play. Um, one of the problems that has often led to um, something not being agreed is because the individuals involved, one may be too junior, uh, or secondly, they may well not be empowered to 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 do anything slightly out of the ordinary. So they, you, you may well have a commercial person. I, I keep using money because money is where the big arguments usually lie. But you may well have a co- commercial person who's told you can't settle that problem for any more than X. And that's it, X is his or her limit. Um, But actually, if there was just a little bit more give on that, maybe you could offset that against something else, either a little bit down the line or already exists. You you, you can start to negotiate a little bit. And so empowerment of the individuals involved if there is a problem is really, really important. But then also I think sometimes uh, it's experience and leadership If you bring people into the room that have just seen this loads and loads of times before, there is an impossible argument, or on the face of it, it's an impossible argument. But we know that three years from now, this will all have been settled. So everything will be settled. You've just got to find the answer. And if you start to talk to someone else on the basis of we've got an impossibility here, but there will be an answer, you and I have just got to find that and find a way through for either our companies or the customer as well, if we're talking to a consultant. Um, Once you start to recognize that there is actually an answer that both of us will live with, you'll find it. It might take a little bit of time and it might might take a lot of negotiation, but you will find it. And along the way, you will, um, so long as you're both Uh, treating this in the way in which you should, you'll probably form quite a strong relationship with the person that you're negotiating that really difficult situation uh, with.
0: Do you know what, Greg, I often am struck by this when I'm speaking to very senior people such as yourself. It sounds very easy and you're probably very good at it, which is why you've become chief executive. I, I can think of many examples where... These kind of words of wisdom come out from senior people and you know they mean it because they've done it and they've been there Mm -hmm. and they've got the scars. And that's why they became top top guy, because they're good at it. The challenge, I think, in your sector and all sectors, but from my experience in the construction sector is most people on the ground don't have those skills or don't feel empowered or they're dealing with very risk-averse companies, which we've been talking about earlier. They think they can't budge they are st- stuck in the um in the transactional confrontational um contractual mindset and things go wrong and blame emerges and i've I've seen this a lot and i'm sure you have too more, much more than i have i imagine so I, I come back to this question of that all sounds great but it doesn't happen a lot why not
1: well i that, that That's a huge question at the end of the day, but um I think one of the one of the areas oh. I, I'll, I'll speak from a positive perspective one of the areas where we see that um, we can maybe um, not get into that situation is right at, particularly for the larger projects right at the beginning have the conversation with sort of your opposite number whoever you're likely to be dealing with the most have the conversation that says how are we going to behave when we fall out so let's picture that day now and what are we going to do Uh, how do you behave in that situation do you go all quiet do you just write letters and emails or do you like to discuss things you know how are we going to deal with it because it will happen Hopefully it'll only be a small thing, but if it's a big thing, what are we going to do? And the one thing I would say right from the start is we've got to keep talking. Even if we have an argument and we upset each other for some reason, uh, it does happen. Let's at least agree. We'll come back the following day and discuss it and see if we can move on again from that. Um, So that pre-thinking of the day Definitely helps, because when you get to one of those days, you can say, do you remember we had a conversation at the beginning about having a fallout? I think we're having one of those fallouts. (laughs) And do you remember what we said that we were going to do? Because I'm actually getting a bit annoyed with you. You're getting a bit annoyed with me, or maybe I've run out of my arguments. Uh, This is how we were going to go and deal with it. Let's go and deal with it like that. So there's not much of that goes on, actually.
0: No, do you, not much of what goes on, not much of people having those conversations. No, not much
1: of having that
0: pre-conversation. No, exactly. That, yeah. By the way, that is exactly the stuff that we talk about all the time at the mobilisation stage is, yeah. is exactly that, spending as much time working out what, what you're going to do when things go wrong the behaviours you're going to demonstrate and then writing it down uh, as on the technical side because guess what, three years in it might be a different set of people on the project as well. Exactly, yeah. And so whatever you agree at the beginning verbally... Yeah. Has gone out never existed because it was just verbally agreed at the beginning mm. so you have to put this stuff in but that that in our experience doesn't happen very much and should do mm. and, uh, and
1: I'd, I'd have to say the, the other thing that's absolutely key to this yeah? yeah don't get into the wrong deal in the first place don't agree to provide services or products that you can't deliver and know for well Uh, or you're not absolutely certain that you can't deliver, just don't get into those deals. Don't take on risks that um, you know you can't fully manage and mitigate, but you have to take it on if you want this contract. Don't go there. Um, You're know you buying yourself a a problem later on or likely buying yourself a problem uh, later on. You just take a punt on the fact that it isn't going to happen and hopefully we'll be all right. Well, hopefully we'll we'll be all right is not a way to run a sustainable business. So, so much effort needs to go into making sure that you get the right project, the right customer, the right supply chain and the right deal that binds all of that lot together. Now you've got a really good chance of a successful project. And even then, some things will go wrong and that's where you start to bring in some of the the relationships, but you are working away from a sensible deal in the first place.
0: And I'm presuming that goes back to what you said earlier about playing to your own strengths.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure.
0: And yeah. we call that sharpening the spear, being really clear on your best customers, where you can bring the best value and focusing on those. And, and so is so that something we, you've done? Yeah, we,
1: we, we talk about our sweet spots and a, a few years ago, a number of years ago, we did have to have a good hard look at ourselves. And one of the things that we looked very hard at is, what are our sweet spots? Yeah. Where is the fact and evidence for us uh, that we can say for those sectors and these types of projects, we know for a fact that we can deliver it to customers that will be very satisfied and we can make the right return out of those projects and sometimes it's it's a little bit of detail so it wouldn't just be a commercial office block it would be a commercial office block that probably is this sort of size it's in a particular region it's under a certain type of contracts there'll be some detail uh behind it as well but we know very clearly what our sweet spots are and they are the places that we choose to work
0: that's really powerful i, I can just dig a bit on mm. that, so what has been the result of to, following that strategy because as I say we call this sharpening the spear and i think I think a lot of organizations i 'm thinking of professional service firms as well could really follow that model not not bidding for everything but really we call it spear fishing rather than net fishing
1: it's um it's not the easiest thing to follow because when uh Uh, Someone at the early stage brings in a a nice shiny project, could be a really nice big one, um, to then turn around to them and say that's not in accordance with our heat map. Our heat map is the document that sets out all of the detail behind the sweet spots. That's not in accordance with our heat map, so unless there's a very good reason to do it, we're not doing that because we don't need to. Um, That can be quite difficult to turn something down. But if you do turn something down that isn't something in your sweet spots, you'll end up where we are now, which is certainly in the upper quartile of operating margins for large contractors.
0: And that's because of this pro- this strategy. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. You're, you're doing the things that you know you're really good at. I mean, that's really simple and really common sense, but so many times people see things as maybe it's a bit grass is greener uh, side of things, you know, they're, that in essence they're taking a risk of slightly moving into another sector that they don't know everything about that sector and they'll come across something that they weren't expecting that's not good
0: and do do you do you become better known in those sweet spot areas of course if they're doing this kind of projects scans where the guys, because they really know this thing.
1: I, I mean, I, I tell our customers openly that this is what we have. These are our sweet spots. You know, it's quite a good discussion to say, look, we know that we operate really well. If the form of contract looks like this or that, we know that we are likely to win your procurement process if your pr- process involves this sort of uh, suite of things.
0: I love that. I love that because I really feel strongly that you have to be not for some things in order to be best for other things. Yeah. You can't be best at everything. Yeah, And what's for everyone is for no one. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, that's what it boils down to. Mm-hmm. Well, how do people, how do your clients react? I mean, you and I actually were in a workshop. I, I led a workshop a few years ago with you with a major government contractor where there was a lot of kind of open discussion about the nature of contracts. And it, I know that a lot of things you were saying to them was a revelation to them. They didn't realize how contractors thought at all. And I suspect there were some things the other way around too, although I'm sure you you know. And that was an interesting kind of open conversation. How do your clients react when you say that to them? What's, what's, what, how does that work for you? With the dynamics of it. I,
1: I I think it probably takes a little bit of time for uh, them to recognise that what you're saying you do actually mean and you are actually doing it. So when you turn around to a customer, let's say quite a large customer that has various different types of work, uh, and to turn around to a customer and say, "Look, we're not going to bid that one because." It, it doesn't quite fit the the best way of us working. So if it's okay with you, we're, we're going to just be honest at the front. I'm not going to kid you, uh, we're just not going to do that one. Uh, and nine times out of 10, the customer is very uh, pleased that you've actually just told them the truth. It's a little bit like kidding yourself that when a customer asks you to comment on their 100 million pound budget, the main thing they want to hear is that, yes, it can be done for 100 million. When you've worked it out and it's 110, it's not the best message uh, to them, and you're probably not going to win it. But I don't want to get into a contract that is going to cost 110, and and I'm going to be arguing up from 100 all the time in trying to, in trying to negotiate the deal. You're better off just going along and speaking to them at the beginning. And I think we've got now... Because it takes a little bit of time for people to realize that's what you do i think we've now got a, a, a reputation of we just are quite honest about things there's no point getting into something where you're kidding someone else that this is different to what it actually is
0: in that discussion greg you've addressed two of the key dimensions of trust that we describe the first is and the, i think it almost is the foundational thing is clarity so you've been really clear You're clear with the customer, you're communicating with them why you are or not bidding Mm -hmm. for their contract. That's a very powerful foundation for trust. And then you've exhibited the behaviours of honesty. One of the five key behaviours that we've called out as the characteristics of a high trust Now, the third dimension, uh, clarity ca- character character and then it's capability, the third part, which we one can get into, but you've got obviously very powerful capability in the areas where you're clear about. And that's also what you're saying, which is we're only going for the things where we
1: are highly capable and we know we're highly capable. Do you... but uh, And if I might interrupt. Yeah. Um, I, I would also draw this back to, you said earlier on, um, or you, you were asking the question about contractors differentiating themselves one of the areas that um allows us probably to um promote this type of uh, approach to customers is we are actually a very values-based organization so our values are incredibly important to us so one of those being transparency uh, so ethically transparent um, and when you're when you spend time with Uh, certainly your colleagues and people within the organization talking about values we do ethical dilemmas all the time you start to get a feel for actually how we should behave within this organization and that sort of cascades down a a reasonable way Um, but also when you start to talk to your customers about the fact that we're values driven so I think that within the trust situation it's important to say to the customer that I know, let's say you get yourself into a situation where we're really up against time, customer, uh, it doesn't really matter whose fault it is, but we're really up against time. This customer really needs his project uh, on a given date, And I would say to him, we will work incredibly hard uh, to achieve that for you. However, we do have some priorities that might cut across that. So if we come across a safety incident uh, that let's say it's the day of handover or the day before of handover, safety will always come first. Uh, so we have some priorities that are just going to blow your priorities out the water. Unfortunately, we just be honest about that. So, uh, and that again comes from a sort of values driven. I think most contractors, uh, would, would agree with that one. So there are some things that, uh, are actually just more important. You've got onto
0: a big issue um which uh, let's deal with quickly because we're towards the end of our discussion which is of culture yeah and th- the theme of this discussion is trust how important is the culture of your organization which you've described as being values-based mm-hmm. and values are the underpinning of culture it's the way we do things mm-hmm. culture is the way we do things not what we do it's how we do it mm-hmm. and the values should be defining that how, how and you're a swedish firm too and i, I just want you to perhaps if you, if it's relevant, reflect on that as part of this, this answer, um, uh, how important that is in terms of your ability to build trust and maybe trust your clients in this and in, in other contractors, subcontractors and so on in this, in this context.
1: Um, let, let me deal with the Swedish part. It, that is a benefit to us. Um, the Swedish culture is naturally a very values-based culture. Um, And what that really does for you, it creates a platform where it's sort of expected that you will think about things from a values perspective first. So earlier on where I said you you can get into problems if people aren't empowered to do things in a certain way in knowing that we're values based, people talking about values, everyone's empowered uh, to to think about values first. And so that's a really good platform for everyone to work away from. Um, I think the the culture of the organisation has got to sit firmly at the top. Um, And it's really important that the um, ethos, beliefs, the way in which we go about things um, is very, very well understood, but it's backed up constantly in terms of what you actually do. Um, and that's when it comes to some of the difficult stuff. So uh, maybe one of the most difficult things we had to deal with in recent times was the pandemic. So how the different contractors behaved during the pandemic, I think set some apart in terms of their uh, their culture. Uh, our, um, w- w- we said right at the beginning, I, I remember, I think it was on one of the live briefings that I did. Um, I was quite honest, we don't know. Uh, how we're going to tackle the pandemic yet. We're working it out. We're, we're working all sorts of hours, going through all sorts of quite scary uh, optioneering um, and scenario planning. And at the moment, we don't know the answer. But I know that the first way in which we're going to deal with it is to look at our values. And in fact, that that gave us the answer because it it said to us that This is actually a a good opportunity to invest in your people and show your people that in a situation like this, you can put them first. So we stopped all the work on our sites whilst we first made sure that they were safe and we could operate in a safe manner. We then started to look at, well, how are people actually going to live their lives? And we tried to make that um, as uh, as comfortable for people as we could. Uh, And there are various things that we did that made it very clear to our staff that we are very much trying to look after you during what is a a very difficult uh, time. So working from a values perspective was uh, actually was helped us with the answer. What
0: value did you gain from doing it that way for the business?
1: I, I think we've got we've got a huge number of people that understand that when times are tough, the company will try its best to look after you. And that, that gains just a huge amount of value from our biggest asset, our people.
0: I call that turning values into value. Yeah, if you're acting yeah. <laughs> on your values,
1: yeah, a fair way of putting
0: it. You create real value. Yeah. And you could probably put numbers, it, if you chose to, and maybe you have that, put numbers against that in terms of productivity, engagement, mm. retention, mm. recruitment, all those big merit, metrics you look at a lot, I'm sure, benefit from what you've just described. I, I'm absolutely I, sorry. I mean,
1: one of the things that, is is quite interesting. Not all of uh, the main contractors did it like we did. Um, And maybe they were in a difficult financial situation. They had to to take some harder decisions. Um, What we did see, though, was that, and that didn't go down well with their people. Um, And at a point in time later on, when they were able to, to some extent, rectify it, even in rectifying it, that people had a memory uh, and they knew what happened at the time when it was hard. Um, so the, there is actually a long memory uh, in your staff as well. You should never forget that.
0: I think that's a great thought. And we did a webinar just in passing very early in the pandemic, Mutual Value did a webinar in which we said the story right now is the one that people remember. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to behave right now? Because this is the story you're writing of the future, yeah. whatever you set up to this point you're rewriting his history, oh, and it was true, and you've obviously done it in the right way. Greg, listen, you're the outgoing CEO, you're retiring as CEO, but you tell me you're retiring full stop. What, what, I mean, as you look back on your tenure as CEO of Skanska, what, what, what are your reflections
1: on that, your thoughts on that? Well, that's uh, tw- 20 years of experiences. Um, I, I, I mean, I've had the most incredible fun um, I've been fortunate enough to work in different parts of Skanska. So I've learned so much. Uh, during that. I came up through the building industry, but I looked after the civil engineering side and various other things. So I've had a huge amount of fun. Um, the thing that has just become more and more obvious uh, as I've gone through my career is just quite how important the team is. Uh, everything we do in the construction industry in some way is a function of a team. And quite often we're changing those teams from one project to another or one initiative to another. Um, and for a start off, you need to have a complete team. Uh, just having one member missing in your team is a drain on the team. So at least have a complete team. And then it's about exactly who is within that team. But um, I I mean, I think I've achieved quite a lot, but actually I couldn't have achieved any of that without the team. So the the team has achieved it, you know, and it's it's really, really enjoyable to work with other people, ideally diverse people that, you know, you can have arguments with um, and they they allow you to have arguments with them. Um, and then you always end up in a better place than where you started off. So it's just been a lot of fun.
0: And a big challenge ahead now that you're retiring. Would you want to say a bit about that? Because that's a biggie, isn't it?
1: Well, I'm going into another a a team situation, so I'm going to be uh, uh, on a uh, 70-foot racing yacht with 20 people. It's a stripped-out racing boat. There's no heating. Uh, We're going to be going over the North Pacific, trying to win a race uh, of going around the world. Um, So it's. Actually, I'm hoping that I can bring some of my learnings from uh, teams and how to form and uh, really get teams performing well, try and put it into that situation as well. Uh, and again, ho- hopefully have huge amounts of fun.
0: I'm sure you will. And there will be a lot of collaboration in and, that
1: situation. And, and the odd beer occasionally. One or two <laughs>
0: beers. I think that part of it. Greg, thank you. Greg Craig, uh, outgoing CEO of Skanska. Thank you so much for your time. Really Pleasure. appreciate it. Really Pleasure. appreciate it.